Let me pray for us. Father, we look to you to help as we come to your word now. And we ask that the things that we don't know you would teach us, and the things that we don't have you would give to us, and the person that we are not yet you would continue to make us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, a good while ago now, uh, maybe even two decades, I've lost track, uh, I was a young strapping surfer that would spend Sunday, new, uh, Sunday afternoons between morning church and evening church hunting for waves. There was a stretch of coastline along uh, the Cape Town beaches that was sort of this main thoroughfare and there were little surf spots that dotted it along it and when there was a swell running you could pretty much be uh, guaranteed that there would just be cars and cars and people and people and surfers and surfers. Well, one particular Sunday afternoon, I was uh, down there with a friend, Dustin, and uh, another friend of ours from church drove past, and, and as he was driving past, he kind of honked his horn a little bit and then kind of waved and then kind of turned his head and looked a little bit awkward, and I wasn't really sure what was going on. Well, he came to church that night, and he, he kind of grabbed me and took me to the side and said, uh, Jason, um, who was that blonde that you were getting out of the car with down at that surf spot? And I said, uh, hey, Dustin, come over here. And my friend with long blonde hair walked up, and I said, this was the blonde that I was getting out of the car and going surfing with this afternoon. I, I tell you that story because depending on how we see something will determine the impact that it has on us. Uh, what impact does Jesus have on us? What impact will this incident as we open up Mark chapter 2 have on us? Uh, as we've journeyed through Mark's gospel over the last couple of weeks, uh, we've discovered uh, that no day in Jesus' life was an ordinary day. Uh, that Jesus' life consisted right now of going out into the countryside to preach, and then he would do miracles, and the crowds would come, and then he would go back into the town, and he would do the same thing there, and then he would run off to the countryside again when the crowds became too much. Uh, we arrive today with Jesus on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, out of the city, out in the country, kind of like driving northeast out of Raleigh towards Roanoke Rapids, then hanging a left, ending, ending up in Henrico, North Carolina, on the north side of Lake Gaston. Roughly, that's where we are geographically. And the crowds uh, gathered around him, and he seems to have, on this day in Mark 2, snuck back into town. Uh, after he returned to Capernaum, after some days of doing this teaching, uh, this is where we find him. Now, it wasn't a problem on the one hand that Jesus uh, had these throngs of people that were coming to him. After all, he had a purpose. He had a message that he wanted people to hear. Those crowds meant opportunity for the message to be heard uh, that message was bound up in what Jesus began to, to preach soon after John was arrested, where he proclaimed the gospel of God and said, the time has drawn near, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Uh, that was the message that he preached. But it probably wasn't what drew the crowds. In fact, I'm not even sure that the crowds understood the message. I'm reasonably sure that they didn't. For as he proclaimed the message, he also demonstrated its truth. He backed it up, as it were, with the most extraordinary and striking miracles. In wonderful ways, people who were sick were healed. 
uh, people uh, who had been terrorized by the spiritual evil and the demonic, uh, they had those demons driven out of them. And understandably, the crowds were caught up with these actions of Jesus, perhaps not clear or able to grasp the significance of what it was that he was doing in what he said, but excited about what he was doing in healing many. And because of this, the crowds came, and they came, and they came, and it made it difficult for Jesus to go on preaching this message, teaching this news, because as the crowds gathered around him, they wanted miracles performed for them. And so Jesus keeps on moving from village to village, town to town, in and out, in and out. And that's what happens when we get here to the beginning of chapter 2. They sneak back into Capernaum, maybe early one morning. They end up uh, back at Peter, Peter's mother-in-law house. And, you know, in my mind at least, she says, here's a cup of coffee, sit down, rest, put your feet up. But they'd been spotted. They hadn't escaped the crowds. Uh, and so we read in verse 2, And many gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And again, he was preaching the word to them. The crowds have gathered once more. So does he make a run for it and head for the hills? Does he yield to the demands of the crowds to meet the needs of the suffering people as they keep on coming to them? Interestingly enough, he does neither. He neither runs nor does miracles, but rather with the crowd packing in, Jesus began to preach the word to them. He turned the problem of the crowd into an opportunity to achieve his purpose, to do what he had come to do. And we've already heard him say that the time had drawn near, the kingdom of God is at hand. But as we hear these words, as we encounter Jesus, as you work your way through Mark, and as we do this together, to feel the real impact of what it was that Jesus was doing, a really helpful question to ask over and over is, why? Why did Jesus say that? Why did Jesus do that? Why did people respond to him in that way? Why did Jesus preach to them when all they wanted to do was to have their sick healed? What would he do with these curious people, these suffering people, these people whom he desired to show compassion to? Well, I want to make three points from this passage this morning. Here's the first one. Number one, Jesus knows what we cannot know. Jesus knows what we cannot know. Jesus understands the difference between our real need and our felt needs. For the crowds that gathered around Jesus over and over, they had their felt needs, but their felt needs were blinding them to their real needs. Felt needs are often like that. Felt needs make us desperate. They feel so acute. Our health, desiring healing, broken friendships, desiring recognition, wanting success, Whatever it is that we're conscious of, whatever it is that we fill our lives with, whatever it is that we chase, whatever longings shape and direct the way that we live and the choices that we make, we can feel them so strongly, those felt needs, that they blind us to our real needs. Our real needs can often be something that's quite different. It's like going to a doctor as a patient but refusing to find out what the real diagnosis is and demanding that the doctor only ever treat the symptoms 
and never get to the bottom, the root, the real problem. That's the difference between real needs and felt needs. Our felt needs are our symptoms. Our real needs is what is at the heart and the core that is causing them. But now, because the time has come, our real need, Jesus knows, is not to walk again. It's not to see again. It's not whatever physical or emotional or mental need that we feel so deeply. Our real need is to repent and believe the good news, the gospel. Uh, that's why back in Mark chapter 1 and verse 35, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place, and, and there he prayed. And we usually just read that verse because we're like, we wouldn't mind going out quietly to a desolate place and being by ourselves and having nobody bother us. No cell phone reception. No one can touch us. But Simon and those who were with him, they actually went looking for Jesus. And when they found him, they said, everyone's looking for you. And Jesus said to them, not go find some rest, but rather let's go to the next town that I may preach there also, for that is why I have come. That is why I came out. That is why I came into the world. So here we begin to see the importance of what we're seeing, Jesus' own understanding of why he came, and therefore the implications and the application of what we should be busy with as followers of Jesus. You see, we'll always be put under pressure to do this or to do that. And I'm not saying that being put under pressure to do this good thing or to have that rest or to take this time out or, or whatever it is that you're feeling the pressure of doing because you're a follower of Jesus is a bad thing. In fact, it's a really good thing. We should care for people more deeply. We should strive to do more good amongst the world and the people that God brings along our path. But we ought never to lose sight of the real need because of the urgency or the seriousness of the felt need and the pressures that that places on us. True compassion will never turn a blind eye to felt need, and Jesus never did that, which is what we'll see in our story, but true compassion will always remember its source. True compassion will always remember that the kingdom of God has drawn near, and there is this call to repent and believe in the good news. So that's the first thing. Jesus knows what we cannot know. Here's the second thing. Jesus sees what we cannot see. In verse 3, some men came bringing him a paralytic. The kind of prob uh, problem that uh, Jesus was renowned for healing. Uh, paralytic, par paralyzed people were as common then as they are now. Back in chapter 1, we heard about all kinds of these healings. But this story is a little different. Uh, this paralyzed man was brought by some of his friends. They were a little bit late to the crowd. They obviously only picked up Twitter or Facebook at 9 o'clock in the morning and discovered that the house was already full. And so when they got there, they walked up onto the roof and they began to dig. Uh, they had those kinds of roofs. Don't try doing this today. It won't work. You don't have those roofs in North America. But they got onto the roof and they started to dig. And what we need to see here is that as they dig, they're actually saying something about why they have come. Jesus, you might be uh, here preaching, but this is more important. We're going to interrupt this preaching event. We're going to disregard your agenda 
because this is our agenda. Uh, so what is it that will, Jesus will do? Will he, turn, uh, the, uh, will he turn in on the pressure of what's happening in front of him? Will he stop the preaching? Uh, to quote one of the great poets from the 20th century, a little less conversation, a little more action, please. Will he, uh, will he stop talking and take action? Will the felt need trump the real need? Uh, if, if he does give in to the crowd and he performs this miracle, will they remember anything that he had to say in the first place? Now, I wish I could, but I know that I can't. If I were to perform a miracle in your presence tonight, you would not remember anything that I said. You wouldn't have remembered anything that we sung tonight. You would walk out of here, and the only thing you could remember was that a miracle took place. And that was one of the problems that Jesus had, that the miracles overshadowed the message. But what we need to understand about miracles, especially in the Gospel of Mark, is that miracles were only ever signposts pointing to something else. Uh, I had the, the wonderful privilege of uh, going out to the mountains for a couple days this week for a retreat with some church planters. And when you get on the interstate, it's full of signs. And the signs are always telling you where you're going or they're telling you how fast to go or how fast not to go or whatever. But the signs are only ever pointers to help you get to your destination. That's what the miracles of Jesus are like. They are signposts pointing to the true identity of Jesus. So what will Jesus do? If he refuses to heal the man, uh, he will um, potentially uh, sidestep over him. The crowds will think, well, what are you about? Uh, if he does go ahead and heal the man, will they remember anything that he said in the first place? We don't have to wait long to work out what he does. Verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I don't know about you, but that might be lost on us in the 21st century in the West where we have the Bible and we've been to Sunday school and we've encountered the story in one way, shape, or form over the years. For Jesus to say, Son, your sins are forgiven, well, that's just a Bible story, isn't it? The Bible's full of this kind of thing. We pretty much expect Jesus to say something like that. So it's easily lost on us. It sounds as though he's refusing the obvious plea. You can just imagine the man's friends looking down through the roof saying, Jesus, no, not his sins, his legs. His legs are broken. The legs, Jesus, the legs, not the sin. But Jesus sees what we cannot see. Jesus sees that this man's condition, serious as it is, is not as serious as his, his heart's condition. This man's life condemned to be that of a beggar uh, lying at Jesus' feet whose most desperate felt need was to have his legs restored so that he can contribute to his family and their well-being. Mark tells us uh, that he hears these words because Jesus saw the faith of his friends. The faith of his friends would have been that Jesus would heal their friends. The faith of his friends wasn't that uh, this man would have his sins forgiven. So again, we're asking ourselves, why? Why did Jesus say that? Well, it's because he sees what we cannot see. He's not dealing with the felt need. He's dealing with long-term hope. We need to remember why Jesus came. 
He takes the opportunity of this suffering man at his feet to make it absolutely clear that since the time has come, since the kingdom of God has drawn near, this man's real need is not to walk. In actual fact, because the kingdom of God has drawn near, it won't do him a great deal of good to have the felt need met without having the real need met. He, like every person in the crowd, like every person in this crowd, needed his sins forgiven. That was the real need, just as it is yours, just as it is mine. Jesus sees what we can't see. He recognizes that real need. And I wonder how many of us still today come to Jesus only for our felt needs. How many of us come to Jesus uh, treating him uh, not uh, as the great Savior, the King, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, but as someone who is just able to do what we want him to do? How many of us still today come to Jesus with all of our expectations, all of the things that we want him to do for us, yet we cannot truly see him for who he is and for the long-term hope that he offers? Thirdly, I want you to notice that Jesus solves what we cannot solve. So he knows what we cannot know, he sees what we cannot see, and he solves what we cannot solve. Uh, in verse 6, we, we meet another group of people. There were the crowds, there were the friends and the paralyzed man, there were Jesus, the disciples. And in verse 6, we meet some scribes who were sitting there, and they were questioning in their hearts. These were the religious leaders. They were the teachers of the law. They weren't law professors. They were Bible teachers. They were meant to have trained in the scriptures of the Old Testament. They knew the oral tradition. They were there to check Jesus out. They were the uh, religious authorities of the day. It's kind of like having a bishop come into your service and just make sure everything is as it should be. These authorities had come to see what this wandering preacher who was making such an impression in that region was all about. And so verse 7, they say, why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Their question was actually a reasonable one. Our sins are, by definition, those things that we have through saying something or doing something or sometimes not doing something, being an affront towards God. In Psalm 51, we read, Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. David uh, praised that to the Lord, the God of Israel. Sin, of course, includes the things that we do against other people, but they're primarily sins because they are done against God, the creator of all things, the judge of all men. And so for these scribes, these teachers of the law, to ask this question, who is this man? How he, can he speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, they're actually going down the right track. 
Uh, These teachers of the Bible, the Old Testament scriptures, would have known full well that Exodus 34 speaks about the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. They knew that only God could forgive sin. So who does Jesus think he is telling this poor bloke lying there, unable to use his legs, that his sins are forgiven? When you actually stop and think about it, it seems so wrong on so many counts. Firstly, it it just seems incredibly rude and insensitive to this man who's lying there. You know, Jesus, if you can't do it, just tell us that you can't do it, and that's fine. We'll take him somewhere else. But then to go to the other end of the spectrum and say, well, son, your sins are forgiven, surely that is an affront to God. Because if the one that we have sinned against is God, surely it is only God who can forgive sins. If I have uh, once again forgotten to do something that my wife has asked me to do, and I walk into the office uh, one Monday morning and say, hey, Tripp, I did this to Janine, but would you please forgive me? Does that hold any water whatsoever? Does Tripp have any right to forgive the affront that I've done to Janine? No, he doesn't. And the same is true with God. And so these scribes, teachers of the law, say, Jesus, you're blaspheming, because what you are pronouncing is what belongs only to God. It is an insult and an affront to him. Interestingly enough, as you read through this, you discover, uh, or if, you, if you've spent any time in the Bible, that is, not as you read through this, but if, if you've spent any time in the Bible, you might know that the penalty for blaspheming is actually getting stoned. Not that stoned, uh, the other stoned. It's a capital offense. And sometime later on in Mark, we'll read that the religious leaders actually begin to build a case against Jesus with blasphemy at his core. That's why he'll ultimately be put to death. But as we look at what these scribes said, we need to notice, firstly, they were right. They were right in what they said. Only God can forgive sins. But we need to secondly notice that they were wrong. Verse 8, immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they had these questions within themselves, said, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Now, you know, what, what's your answer to that one? Well, on one level, both of them are really easy to say. I mean, I just read them. Son, your sins are forgiven, take up your mat and walk. But we need to keep in mind uh, that what Jesus was saying here was actually something that was completely impossible. We could spend a lot of time afterwards arguing over snacks, which one of these things is the more difficult one. But I don't think Jesus was trying to trigger an argument. I think that Jesus' point is obvious, but it's easy to miss. I think Jesus is trying to say, listen, it is equally as impossible to say to the paralytic, stand up and walk, as it is to say to a person, your sins are forgiven. That's the point that he's making. No human being has the power to do either of those things. And so Jesus proceeded to demonstrate that what they knew was impossible for men was not impossible for him. He looked at the paralyzed man and he said to him, I tell you, get up, take your mat and walk. 
And look at verse 12. This is interesting. And he rose immediately and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Now, I don't know if you've ever spent any time in bed. Uh, I haven't so much, but uh, my youngest son, when he was four, spent two weeks laid up in the hospital. When he came out, there were two really interesting things that had happened to him physically. The one was that he had a bald patch in the back of his head, which you think is impossible when you look at his hair today. But the second one is that he couldn't walk. He literally had to learn to walk again and to build up those muscles. So for Jesus to say, get up and walk, and for this man to literally be able to get up, pick up his mat, and walk out of there without anyone disagreeing that this is what had taken place is truly amazing. This is the event that Mark is calling us to witness. But again, it's quite possible that this has no impact on us because we're not able to see what's right in front of us. It's really interesting, just if you go back to verse 10 at the moment. It's a little ambiguous in our English translations. It's a little bit ambiguous in the Greek translations as well. But a couple of times in Mark's gospel, Mark as the narrator breaks in to his reader and says, this is what I want you to know about this event. And he does it here in verse 10. When it says, but that you may know, I think that that's actually Mark breaking in as the narrator, saying to us, the readers, but that you may know. And then he goes back into the story. But that you may know that Jesus has the authority that he claims. But that you may know that Jesus truly is able to heal and to forgive sins here on earth. But that you may know that your sins can be given, forgiven on earth before you face him as judge. This is what I want you to know. This is what I want you to see. This is what I want you to remember. But that you may know, you here tonight, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise up, pick up your bed, and walk. And that's exactly what he did. He rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. And they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. And so, friends, the question that I want to ask you as we draw this to a close is that, is, do you believe that your real need is the same as this paralyzed man? That your real and greatest need, not just in heaven, but here on earth now, because the time has come, because the kingdom of God has drawn near, do you really believe that your greatest need is to have your sins forgiven? And if you really do believe that your greatest need is to have your sins forgiven, and you really do believe that you have repented of them and trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior because of his death and resurrection, then why are you so anxious about so many things? Why do your felt needs crush you? Why do they paralyze you? Has your need been met? Has Jesus forgiven your sins? Mark wants us to know that he not only teaches with authority and heals with authority and casts out demon with authority, but he forgives with a final authority. Has Jesus Christ forgiven your sins? The truth for all of us is that anyone who asks, he will never turn them down. 
The impact that Jesus has in this account this evening on us ought to be uh, and ought to make us ask this question, do we really want to have that real need met? Do we really want to make sure that that real need is met in our children and our parents and our friends and in our city? And what I want to say to you is that you're unclear about this real need. If you're unclear whether or not you've had your sins forgiven, I really encourage you to talk with someone tonight. Talk with anyone you've seen in the front. Talk with the person that invited you to, to come here tonight. Uh, this really is the most important question that we'll ever ask. The scribes even ask it. Who is this man? Why does this man speak like this? Who is this Jesus? And can I trust him? And so that's a question that we'll all have to walk out of here tonight asking. Who is this man? Who is this man to us? I'd like to encourage you to just take a few moments to be silent before the Lord and to ask some of those why questions for yourself. Why did Jesus come? What is my real need? Can he meet it? Have I trusted in him? And after a few moments of quiet, Jimmy's going to come up and lead us in a time of prayer before we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So take a moment, a few moments to be quiet before the Lord.